We collaborated a little on that song, If We Could See Beyond the Day. Three years ago, I was up at Minneapolis for the Graham Association uh, Christmas Supper. Bev Shea came and put on a concert on Sunday afternoon at the First Baptist Church, and I was out in the congregation. He came in a side door and saw me over there. It was time when I was very low in my spirits. He came over to me, and I stood to greet him, and he hugged me before the crowd went up on the platform to sing this precious song, if we could see beyond the day. And so it was perfect for then, and it's fitting that tonight, as we talk about why, that uh, we should hear it. After tonight, we shall turn our attention other directions. We have been talking more or less along the line of comfort and the like. And so we will tonight. Uh, you've already heard that I've been coming to Ben Lippin for now on to 40 years, which I admit somewhat uncomfortably sometimes. Uh, but uh, it's been a delightful 40 years of acquaintance. A lot of people don't know what the word means, mountain of trust, of course, but I always think about another twist of that name. Many of you know Ms. Barlow, precious saint of the Lord, with a keen mind and a keen sense of humor. And in some years ago, they had a board meeting or a committee meeting or something or other discussing Ben Lippin, and they were discussing the past and the present and the future of Ben Lippin, what to do about Ben Lippin. And you know how bored you can get at a board meeting sometime. And finally, after they had discussed it for quite a while, she said, well, I think we've been Lippin enough about this. <laughs> so I, I always connected with uh, that remarkable statement. Tonight, I want you to think with me about uh, one of those words that is most often on the lips of children. All parents say that in the early years, they're under a constant barrage of why from the youngsters. That little three-letter word, and one must needs be a walking encyclopedia to have all the answers to the whys that are thrown at them. But we never really get over it. And the rest of our days, we find ourselves asking not only of others why, but we ask it of God. We see the trouble and the tragedy, and the misery and the mystery, and the iniquities and the inequities of life. So much of it doesn't add up and just doesn't make sense, and we can't work it out on our little computers. We find ourselves asking why of both God and of man and of ourselves. Sometimes God seems to be pretty hard to locate, as Job, when he said, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but he hideth himself, on the right hand that I cannot see him. And then we ask God some whys, like David. Oh, God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Or Jeremiah, 
Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Wilt thou altogether be unto me as a liar? And there's waters that fail. That's a terrible question to ask the Lord. Will you be unto me as a liar? So there's a sort of an outside why and an inside why talking to God. Then we say it to ourselves. And of course, I suppose the most familiar of all the whys in that connection is found over in the Psalms. I remember that three years ago I checked in at a motel when uh, I was passing through uh, this period of uh, sadness. And the Gideon Bible was lying on the table open at that remarkable portion of the Psalms where, at least in my Bible tonight, you have it three times on one page. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And how that spoke to me on that occasion. Whoever opened that uh, Gideon Bible certainly was guided, I think, of the good Lord. I don't need to tell you that uh, any direction you look, you find yourself before long saying why. If you have visited a hospital for crippled, retarded, or abnormal children, and you've seen those little bodies twisted and grotesque and sometimes hideous. If you've stood at the other end of the age line in a home for the old folks and you've beheld those pitiful vegetables kept alive by machines sometimes that prolong death instead of life, shapeless lumps of flesh unable to live or die, if you have visited cemeteries where lie the bodies of countless soldier boys who in some cases died in vain in wars that we were afraid to win and ashamed to lose, as has been the case lately. I remember meetings in Arlington, Virginia not long ago, and every day I tramped over that great cemetery, acres upon acres of graves, of those boys lying with faces toward heavenward as if to say, why? Why couldn't I live out my life? If you've looked on the victims of tornado or flood or fire or the corpses of innocent men and women murdered by maniacs, if you've uh, watched the haunting faces of alcoholics and drug addicts and the despair of terminal illness, if you have held, as I have, the hand of a dear one already dead, except that the machinery still kept uh, that monitor beeping over there on the table, when you've been told that uh, she's gone dead except for that, and what a miserable comfort that is. If you have uh, faced the ironic enigmas that add up to nothing in your arithmetic, and if your dreams have been blasted and your hopes have been destroyed by the heartless law of cause and effect, with no answer from the brazen heavens, your heart must cry out with the biggest little word in the vocabulary, my God, why? 
Let's just be honest about it. Some time ago, a minister's widow wrote to me and said, and I knew this dear man. He was a man of God. He was going to Brazil on a preaching mission. They gave him some shots, and I don't know what went wrong. He'd had depression before that, but anyhow, in the hospital, he took his life. And she said, now, it's bad enough for him to go, but why did it have to be like that? Well, I don't know, but I said, I'm preaching over at Gardner-Webb, and your son's there, and come on over, and maybe something that I'll say might be of help, and I think maybe it was. But I don't have any little trite, uh, pat answers for such questions, neither do you. We make our way through a mass and a mess of unanswered questions with no possible solution until we have more light on the subject. You see, everything's mixed today. You can't make sense out of a great deal of it. One day there's a precious answer to prayer, and the next day some weird calamity strikes you. One day there's a miracle, and the next day there's misery, and it adds up to mystery. It's just like the weather. The weather got all fouled up when sin entered into the world. I don't think they had uh, such conditions before. The devil has a lot to do with the weather. Sent a storm and destroyed Job's family and tried to stir up one on that little sea or lake of Galilee when my Lord was out there in the boat. And then Eurocliden, as Paul started to roam, one day sunny skies and singing birds and the next day hurricane and destruction. There is absolutely no discernible pattern as far as we can see because the weather's been fouled up. Who can make any sense out of blossoming buds and tender fruit killed in one night by a belated wintry frost? I was in Gulfport uh, in meetings not too long after Camille, that awful hurricane came through. The next morning you couldn't hear a bird saying, they told me, people spoke in whispers. <clears throat> One man said, everything I had in this world just disappeared. I don't know where it went. Everything. And life's a good deal like the weather. No rhyme or reason to so much that happens because of the havoc that was wrought by Satan and sin. Some time ago I was in a conference and my partner on the program was Dr. Clyde Francisco of Southern Baptist Seminary and he said something that did my soul a lot of good. And it had to do with the weather. He said uh, God gave to Adam control over, uh, to a great extent, uh, dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the field. But there were two things that he did not give Adam dominion over. One was the winds and the other the water. We can use them to some extent, but we don't have much dominion over either one. But he said one day there came one to earth who was taking a nap in a little boat and the storm came up out there and the poor disciples forgot that the Son of God was in the boat just like we do sometimes when we get in a little hurricane. And they shook him and said, Don't you know we're going to perish? And then he lifted his hand and the waters calmed down, looked like a mirror. And then what did they say? Somebody had come at last of whom it could say, be said, 
what manner of man is this, that the two things we've never been able to manage, that even the wind and the sea obey Him. You see, He's Lord of all of it. And uh, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is. That won't save folks in hell, but they'll all have to confess that he is Lord. That's not the same thing as confessing that he's their Lord, but everybody is obliged to confess someday that he is Lord of all. <clears throat> and this plight that we get into when trouble comes is made worse <laughs> by some of these cheerful comforters who've never known much trouble with their eyes all dotted and their T's all crossed, who come bouncing along with a simple answer to every complex question. They recite all the musty platitudes and the worn cliches and dismiss your heartache as though it were run-of-the-mill and commonplace when to you it seems like the end of the world. In my bereavement, I shared at first my sadness with every listener, but I soon learned to hide my grief from all but those battered souls who have been along that road and whose hand-clasp and tears say more than words can possibly utter. But God is very patient with our complaints, and I think when you pray, you ought to tell God just how you feel. He knows anyhow. Don't try to put up a pretty one. Grumble a little bit if it's in your system. They did it in the Bible. He knows our frame, and he remembers we're dust, but you don't need to bombard heaven with unanswered questions because God has gathered up all of them and all our agony and all our distress has been answered in one why in the Bible. We cannot fathom the depths of that why, but we can rest in the certainty that in it is found the reason for all our sorrow and the key to all our troubles and the fulfillment of every shattered dream. It began, you know it, with David in the 22nd Psalm, and centuries before my Lord died on the cross, David put into writing a perfect description of crucifixion. And crucifixion was not a Jewish mode of execution. It was a Roman way of killing people. And here you have one evidence of the uh, credibility and the authenticity and the inspiration of this word that this uh, Jew a long time ago, <clears throat> long before the crucifixion, described in advance the death of my Lord. Bones out of joint, verse 14, agony, verses 14, 15, thirst, verse 15, pierced hands and feet, verse 16, partial nudity and scorn, 17, and verses 7 and 8, casting lots, verse 18, and all of it precisely fulfilled, and our Lord climaxed the suffering by uttering what David started his psalm with, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, what does it mean? Well, no preacher, no combination of preachers can ever get to the bottom of that, but we can make a few observations. It's even in Aramaic in your Bibles now, as though they didn't even want to risk running it through the Greek, as though that might detract from the import Luther looked at it for hours. And then he got up and left the table and said, <clears throat> God forsaken of God, who can understand? 
Darkness covered the earth for three hours. My Lord was six hours on the cross, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And the lights went out at noon, and maybe the cattle came home, and the birds went to roost. There was an earthquake, and graves were opened, and dead folks walked around. There are heathen records of an eclipse of the sun at that time. Tradition says that Diogenes witnessed the darkness in Egypt and said either the deity himself suffers at this moment or sympathizes with the one who does. And that was such a strange uh, uh, turn of events there at the cross. Here were the religious people, the very folks who read the Bible, went to church, prayed in public, all of them tithers, lived separated lives, uh, wouldn't have anything to do with the world, tried to win others, and went to hell. And that's the problem in most churches. You can do all of that and be just as lost as lost can be. And they're all good things, and you ought to do every one of them. But there they stood and said, if you're the Son of God, come on down. And that old Roman centurion who'd never been in a revival meeting, never heard a sermon, stood there and said, this must be the Son of God. Now, fiction has never put together anything as amazing as that. And this is fact. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in. When Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. That's what happened because God's Son with no sin in him became man's sin with all sin on him. And for a brief moment, a holy God who can't look at sin turned his back while his Son drank the dregs of that cup when sin was dealt with once for all that God might be just on one hand and justifier on the other, that the judgment seat might be the mercy seat that God might be propitiated and sinners might be reconciled. And that's what happened. Don't think of him as an angry God sitting up there on a cloud somewhere adding up all your sins, and if they're more good than bad, you go to heaven, and if more bad than good, you go to the other place. God hates sin, and he's a holy God and can't look on sin, but he loves us, and he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked or in my fears and my troubles and my sin. My Lord said to the woman taken in adultery, he didn't bawl her out. There's no record that he went at it that way. Go and sin no more. My God sent his son down here not to rub it in, but to rub it out. That's the gospel. God sent not his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now that's not a lot of theological gobbledygook. We've dressed up Calvary today in a sickly sentimentality so as not to give offense to some fastidious Sunday morning bench warmers who don't want their placidity disturbed by gory references to a bruised and beaten Savior with his beard pulled out and his face covered with blood and spittle dying between two criminals. That isn't elegant and it upsets their tender sensibilities. I don't see how it could after they've watched the late, 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 late show on Saturday night. But let me make two observations. Jesus did not have to die. And number two, he did have to die. 
We die because we have to. We have the seeds of sin and death. The wages of sin is death, and we have to pay the wages. But Jesus didn't have any seeds of sin in him, so he didn't have any wages to pay. He could lay down his life and take it up. You can lay your life down. You can kill yourself, but you can't take it up. And when he was ascending that slope with his cross, some women were crying there, and he turned to them. And I've never heard a sermon in my life on this. I'm sure they've been preached. Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. What a text. What a text today when there's so much, uh, so many books coming out about woman and women and the total and all the rest, subtotal and what the rest. My Lord is saying, I am going up this hill on purpose. I'm not the victim of a mob. If I could snap my fingers and scatter every Roman soldier and run every Pharisee out of Jerusalem. But there weren't any angels at Calvary, but thank God three days later they got that old stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And when Simon Peter, there he goes again. I talked about him last night, and he, you know, made another big blunder there in the garden, got that old sword out and started lopping off ears. And Jesus said, now listen, I could call down 12 legions of angels, a legion for each one of you apostles. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set it free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. He was not the helpless victim of a conspiracy because he said to Pilate, you couldn't do a thing. You wouldn't have any power except it were given thee from above. He was in absolute charge of his own death. Nobody else ever died like this. He did not weaken away and die because the blood all ran out of his body. In a way, he died like others have died. Many people have been crucified, but there's this difference. He attended to all his business to the very last moment. He was in charge. Prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them. He appointed John to take care of his mother. He took care of that dying thief and gave him a ticket to glory. He fulfilled scripture. They gave him vinegar to drink. He cried, I thirst. He experienced that separation from God. Then he turned his spirit over to God and said, Into thy hands I commend my spirit and said, It is finished. He was in full possession of his faculties and laid down his life of his own accord. No man took it from him. He died as no other man ever has died. His life was in his own power. He allowed them to kill him, but he didn't die as you and I have to die. And yet he did have to die because he said this commandment, Have I received of my Father? And in the garden, if possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He gave up his life because it was in the will of God. Well, why was it in the will of God? Well, here's where you and I come in. We're in trouble. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're sinners, and a holy God can't look on sin. There had to be somebody who was God and man both, who could meet the demands of God's righteousness, and yet so identify himself with man as to take all the sin of all mankind upon him without any sin in him, sin for us. He saved others. Himself he could not save. The agony of Calvary, beloved, is not just physical suffering. Plenty of people have been crucified, and it's just about the most awful way to leave this world that there is. I don't think there can possibly be any more awful way to die. 
But horrible as it is, many men have been crucified, but there is this added note, he poured out his soul unto death. That's the difference. I have an artist friend in Maryland. He's a real artist. Uh, he doesn't uh, paint pretty pictures. Uh, he paints frightening pictures because he specializes in the agony of Christ in the garden and on the cross. And in the studio, they are horrible pictures. But uh, he's been quite upset in the past about some of these pictures of Jesus in the garden and even on the cross that looked like he was just uh, experiencing some minor inconvenience. And he believes that although Jesus walked on earth as a man, he suffered in his soul as only God can suffer. And of course, no artist's brush can fully depict that, but he has a try at it. Some time ago, two preachers were talking. One said, man, I sweated blood over that. And the other one said, don't you ever let me hear you say that again. That's for Jesus Christ to say. And then it says that when they took him down from the cross, he didn't look like a man. That's what's back of the Hebrew in Isaiah 52, 14. His visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And that was the price he paid. Not physical agony alone, but poured out his soul. And what for? So that one day, not only was he raised from the dead, but dear ones that we have loved and known, whose visage was marred when they left this earth. So as to be scarcely recognizable, as was my experience three years ago. We have the real assurance that one of these days, they're going to be given a brand new body, like unto his glorious body. My wife and I, four years ago, were down at Charleston for a meeting, and one day out there on the battery, I snapped a picture of her, and then I didn't finish the role. It lay in the camera for a year and a half. And then I suddenly thought of it one day and had the rest of it developed, and there she stood. It was a kind of a shock in a way, and then I got to thinking, just as that picture laid in the darkness of that camera for a year and a half, so her body lies in the darkness of a grave in a little Quaker graveyard in Guilford College, North Carolina. But one of these days, the great photographer is going to change negative into positive. And corruption will put on incorruption, and mortal will put on immortality, and death will be swallowed up in victory. Ah, I'm looking for that, and so are many of you. Not only for others, but for myself. You know, many a time I look in the mirror, and you know the verse that comes to me first. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. I said, Lord, you've got to work on this a lot. I heard of a little modernist preacher who said he thought we'd worn out that word salvation. We ought to use the word salvage. Now, wasn't that a bright remark? When you salvage something, you save the same old wreck. Salvation's a brand new job. I don't want to be towed into heaven behind a wrecking crew. I want to go in brand new. And I'm glad I don't know much about it over there. 
because I'm not geared for that now anyhow, and you're not either. Somebody said it'd be like a boy trying to eat a bowl of spinach with a chocolate cake sitting on the table right there in front of <laughs> I think we'd have a rough time with our spinach if we knew what's coming for us who uh, know the Lord. Campbell Morgan says that God does not rend the veil between this and that life, and that he does not lift it, but he does thin it. And I think I know what he means. I've never been so aware of another world as in the last three. Not far, far away. I don't think of it that way. We're walking on the verge of it all the time, beloved. A couple of heartbeats and a couple of breaths, and you're there. Always in the midst of it. People are thinking about it today. Young people are. There are more discussions of young people today on such subjects as death and beyond. I don't feel that when I talk about this, I'm talking to a bunch of old folks who have only a few years because the cemeteries, the graves are of all sizes. And youth goes out sometimes under the most horrible circumstances just as age, and we're all interested or ought to be. My Bible has a lot to say about until, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in until the times of the Gentiles, until he put all things under his feet. We uh, observe his death. We commemorate it until he come, and so on and on. Oh, your concordance will just reveal a string of untils. And I have a sermon on living in the great until. Next time somebody asks you what time it is, you say, tell them it's until. And they may think you're off your rocker, but then go on a little bit and give them a few of these. That's the way to tell what time it is. We're waiting until on A.J. Gordon's uh, tombstone in Boston, just three words, until he come. It's a good appetite. And as my dear one lay near death, unable to talk because she was so geared up with apparatus, but she managed to write, and I still have it. I'm going through things I can't tell you about until... And so uh, a lot of us are waiting for the until. All our troubles and our heartaches, and these unanswered whys grow out of the fact that this world's been wrecked by sin, but I don't have to ask why, because all my whys are taken care of in the only recorded instance of our Lord ever asking why. And he asked it that I may never ask it, and he was forsaken that I may never be forsaken. And he asked it for one moment so that I may never ask it, never. He assures me of the ultimate defeat of the devil and the days when my fears will vanish and my tears will be dried and what I've lost temporarily I'll gain eternally. And to those who are called according to his purpose, nothing's ever lost. If you're in the will of God, you belong to him. Nothing's ever lost. Death can hide but not divide. Thou art but on Christ's other side. Thou art with Christ and Christ with me. United still in Christ are we. You've never prayed a prayer that was lost. You've never shed a tear that was lost. Doesn't the psalmist say you put to my tears in your bottle? Did you know God's in the bottling business? He's bottling up your tears. The sparrow does not fall without his notice. The hairs of your head are all numbered. I have a friend down in Florida who writes the uh, religion section for the paper. She's a remarkable person. 
Christian. She, some time ago in a TV studio, her eyes were damaged by uh, undue light. She got exposed to too much light. And she went to the eye doctor. Now, I don't, she says, this is what the doctor said. She said, do you know what the best eye medicine is? Tears. And he said, no scientist and no doctor has ever been able to work out a perfect formula for tears. That seems to be God's secret. And there are things that you see through tears that you don't ever see any other way. It's good medicine. It's costly. But it's ridiculous to arrive at any final conclusion, beloved, before you finish the book. That's our trouble. We land in the middle of the book of our little life and we try to figure everything out there. Hold it. You're not through yet. When a new building is going up, there's a lot of rubbish around. Broken pieces, odds and ends, leftovers, clutter the place. You remember that in Nehemiah, they were hindered in the rebuilding of the wall. They said there's so much rubbish. But when the building is complete and the trash is all carted away and the new edifice stands clean and complete, you forget about the rubbish. God's doing a big reconstruction job right now, and it's not finished, and we get weary with broken fragments in our lives that don't fit into any blueprints, and we've not seen the end of it. God will finish what he's begun and dispose of all the rubbish. He's got a place for the rubbish. And it got its name originally from the rubbish heap outside Jerusalem. When I was a little boy growing up in the country, the book salesmen used to come through selling books, and they always let us have a prospectus. That was made out of several pages and a few pictures out of the sure enough book for us to look over till they got back. It was a most frustrating experience. You'd read page 10, and the next page was page 64, and you couldn't get anywhere. And it worked. You say, I'm going to have that book if it's the last thing I ever get in my life. When Jesus came to earth, he brought his prospectus with him. Every miracle that he performed was a little sample of what it's going to be like in the kingdom age when he reigns on earth. Every once in a while, he'd just throw out a few samples, and I love to read about every one of them. But one of these days, he's going to take over completely. But you see, the crumbs make you hungry for the cake. And the more you read about the miracles, the more you want to see that blessed day when it'll be all miracle. And uh, we're only reading the prospectus now, and sometimes you feel like saying, Lord, it doesn't make sense. It certainly doesn't. You see, you're trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together, but God sees the picture. You just see the pieces. Some of you have pieces now in the puzzle. You haven't found any way on earth to put that thing in place. The day is coming when you will learn that all things, even that, were working together for good. When I was in school, I made the worst marks. Uh, my marks on arithmetic. The less said about that, the better. <laughs> but I always knew one thing. The answers were all in the back of the book. I've got a book here that if I open it in the middle, there are some things there I can't figure out. 
I've heard some others try, and that confirmed me in the belief that they hadn't. It? But I know one thing. I turn over here, and I discover there's no devil on the first two pages, no devil on the last two pages. God has taken care of the problem. And you have the answers on the last few pages, and everything's in good shape, and God's on the throne, everybody's where they belong. Oh, in the last few years, I've had the most precious cards and letters from folks, and one dear soul in Nova Scotia sent a picture of a little bird, it was between spring, uh, between winter and spring. They were having a late winter and an early spring, and they sort of had a collision. And there were some buds on a limb and snow both. And this poor bird looked like he was trying to figure out whether it was winter or spring. And the little poem said, You have to believe the buds will blow, believe in the grass in time of snow. That's the reason a bird can sing on his darkest day he believes in spring. And some of you may say, Lord, I can't figure this out. Snow and buds, it's all mixed up. But there never has been a winter that wasn't followed by a spring. Never. If winter comes, can spring be far behind? And somebody else sent a little bookmark about birds too, and it just said this. Birds do not sing because they have the answer. They sing because they have a song. I'd like to live like that more than I have. I'm always looking for answers. Let's sing because we have a song, and we'll learn more about the rest of it later on. And don't be bombarding heaven all the time with why, why, why. I've read it all my life, but the other day it jumped out of the page and grabbed me just like things do in the Word of God if you keep reading it. It's in John 16, 22 and 23, and I wish you'd make a red ring around that. Jesus was talking to his disciples, and they had the blues. He said, now I'm going to leave you. But he went on to say, I'm coming back, and no matter which way you want to apply this, the application holds. I'll see you again, and listen, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Has that ever grabbed you? He came back from the grave and answered some questions. The Holy Spirit came and has been answering more. But he's coming again and all questions will be answered. But the thing is, he won't answer them because we won't even ask them. One good look at him. Now, I've got a stack up in this high now I think I want to ask. But I think one good look at him and all my questions will disappear.